Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is John A. Powell. John is the director of the Othering and Belonging Institute and professor of law, African-American and ethnic studies at the University of California, Berkeley. He previously directed the Kirwan Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity at Ohio State University and the Institute on Race and Poverty at the University of Minnesota. John and I talk about belonging. And what I can tell you is that his warm presence is such an elegant invitation for all of us to become ambassadors of belonging, to build belonging, to become belonging activists in our life. I'm so grateful I had this chance to talk to John A. Powell and to share this conversation with you. John, I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Just the preparatory work that I've done has already been illuminating for me. I've learned so much And I'm so grateful to have this chance to share you and your wisdom with the Sounds True audience. So thank you. Thank you. You're welcome, Tanius. Look forward to the conversation. So to begin, you're the director of the Othering and Belonging Institute. And I wanted to start by bringing forward your explanation of these words that are very powerful, othering and belonging. I noticed both of these words bring up a lot of feeling for me, a lot of energy. You talk about othering as a process. So let's start there. Why do you call othering a process? Well, something that we do in practice and we can do it ourselves or we can have it done through the arrangement of our institutions and culture. So it's not necessarily personal, interpersonal, although it often is. And basically it's denying someone's someone their full humanity and denying mutuality. And it's a gradient in that practice. So we can, she used to say hello to someone. She used to shake their hand in the old days. We can refuse to see someone. Uh, We can also lock them up. Uh, We can tell stories about them, make up stories about them. We can deny their voice. Um, Or or we may be more explicit, we might say, They're less than, they're not part of the we. Mm -hmm. They're not to be accorded 
respect or empathy. Uh, there's something wrong with them. And oftentimes that's associated with their threat. And the reason my life is, you know, not better is because of them. So that's the othering process. And again, there are sort of soft expressions of it to extreme ex expressions of it. Um, belonging, and sometimes when people look at othering, the process, when they think the solution to it is saming, right? To say, I'm going to court you um, respect and dignity because you're just like me. Well, maybe I'm not just like you. So it can't be that the price to pay to get rid of othering is belong is saming. And I'll tell the story about James Baldwin when he's invited to a August literary club. And this was, you know, back in the 50s and maybe early 60s. And they said, Mr. Baldwin, we recognize you're a profound writer. And so we want to you to join our club. And he wanted to join the club. And I said, but you know, you don't have to bring up that you're gay. And a lot of your friends, meaning blacks, are riffraff. So they're not really welcome here. But with those caveats and a few more, you can come. And Baldwin declined the offer and went to France instead and wrote a book called The Price of the Ticket. So sometimes we have kind of a conditional. You, you, you can belong as long as you don't talk too loud, as long as you don't remind us that you're Jewish, as long as in the military, right, under President Clinton, don't ask, don't tell. So if you're gay or lesbian or trans, we're not going to ask you about that. And we don't want you volunteering that information. Um, the other extreme is that we say these people don't deserve to be on the face of the earth and we commit genocide. Um, and so um, belonging is when our full humanity as a group and as individuals is embraced. Uh, we're seen uh, as a value. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I was teaching a class and I referred the students back to the Declaration of Independence. You know, we sort of, the country is kind of in a bad place, so we forget that there are these powerful aspirations associated with the country. And they may be further removed from us than ever, but they were there and they're still there. So the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence says, uh, we hold these truths self-evident. Self-evident. Now, then it goes on to say that all men, obviously today we change that, all people are created equal. What does that mean? That means that it's given. You don't have to prove that you're equal. Uh, just uh, by being human, it's God-given from this Declaration of Independence. And it's, it's just there. And you have rights because you're human. You're part of this human tribe, this human family. Now, that's not how we live our lives. But that's belonging. Uh, and belonging says, yes, you're part of the we. And as part of the we, you get to define the world that we live in. You get to have a voice. And I accord you human dignity. I accord you respect. I accord you acknowledgement of, of your humanity and equality not because you're smart, not because you have a lot of money, not because of your race or religion, but just because you're a human being, you're an expression of life. And 
South Africans have a word called sabawanu, which means I see you. It also has been interpreted to mean the God in me or the divine in me sees the divine in you. And the response is, I am here. So it's, it's that, that's, that's a sense of belonging, to be recognized, to be really seen. You know, I, I find this so powerful, John, and maybe I, did, I find it so powerful because for the longest time, just briefly being confessional here, I didn't feel like I belonged on planet Earth. I just mm -hmm. felt like I came out of some kind of alien spaceship and landed here in terms of the things I cared about and the ways that I wanted to relate to other human beings. I just felt like a total outsider. And it's been a huge journey to feel a sense of belonging as a human being. It took me decades. And I would love for everyone to feel that sense of belonging. So I've been so inspired by your work and your commitment to that. And part of what I learned in studying your work is this difference in using the language of inclusivity and the language of belonging. And so I wanna check this out with you because part of what I learned is that it's one thing for me to say, I wanna include you. It's my game, it's my world. I wanna invite you in. And it's another thing to say, we belong together and we're gonna co-create this and you have power and agency. And that's a real journey because we hear a lot about, for example, a business being inclusive or an academic setting being inclusive. But what I learned from you is it's different if it's a situation of belonging. So I wonder if you can underscore what that difference is. You're exactly right. Um, and there's, um, some people argue or assert that we should stop saying that the United States is an immigrant society. And instead, they want to rewrite history or their form of history is to say we're a settler society. And the settlers were the ones who actually created the mold and the conditions for belonging, if you will. And everyone else who comes is a guest. And because they're a guest, if they don't adhere to those norms and conditions, we should not be embarrassed to tell them to leave, to tell them they're, not, they're no longer welcome. So that's inclusive, right? It's that you can come as a guest. But here are the rules. And you say, okay, great, John. Where'd those rules come from? We made them up a long time ago. <laughs> and, and you don't get to mess with the rules. Uh, so as long as you obey the rules that I get to make, and I, might, I, as a settler, I, as the host, I can change the rules occasionally, but you can't. And so inclusion, the way it's generally practiced, whether it's a business or a community, this is the way that we do things here. Interesting. Who's the we? You know, um, we don't like your kind. So uh, the thing about belonging is exactly what you said, Tammy, but it even goes further because we say we are striving for belonging without othering. And our responsibility is to not only co-create a world and a space where I belong, but a world in a space where you belong. Our responsibility goes beyond ourselves. We have responsibility and I would even say obligations beyond ourselves. And, and I would also say that there are people who are 
other because they don't have the right clothes or they show up at the party. Uh, but there are other people who are other, what's called durable, no matter what they do. They could change their clothes. They could change their food. They could change their hairstyles. Like, nope, you still don't belong. Uh, and it's imposed by the state. It's imposed sometimes by laws, imposed by norms. But I would also say that many people, when you examine it, have a sense of, this is not really my place. When you scratch the surface and talk to, to young people, often, uh, in fact, a recent survey, 70% of Americans said, in a sense, they didn't feel like they belong. 70%. Mm-hmm. So who does? Who feels like they belong? Or almost nobody. And it's, it's, it's no wonder. It's like, you know, I'm sitting here in California worrying about the wild, wildfires in May. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like um, you know, when I see the, the way we treat each other, it's like, wh- wh- whose world is this? It's not my world. It's not the world I would want to live in but it's the world I've been consigned to for now. And so the responsibility becomes, how do I actually help this world come into being where both I belong and you belong? So I'm gonna make a, a leap here and I'm going to make an assumption that the vast majority of people that are listening to this podcast, the people who listen regularly to Insights at the Edge, the Sounds True podcast, want to create a world of belonging without othering. That's what's in their heart. That's what they wanted. That's They want to create that. And now I'll just speak for myself. I'm not making any assumptions here. I want to be a belonging activist. All right. After reading and studying, I was like, I want to be a belonging activist. That's good language for me. And you talk about how there's a personal level to this and there's also a structural level. And I wanna talk about both of these things together. The the personal level feels a lot more achievable and like I can start doing that. The structural level and structural interventions, belonging interventions, if you will, they feel harder for me to know how I'm gonna be part of that. But I wanna see if we can illuminate some of them for our listeners. So let's start off, I'm a belonging activist now. What are the personal actions I can take? Well, there are a lot of things that people are doing now. It's really it's really kind of beautiful to see it happening, both in the United States, but also around the world. I've, I've actually gotten requests from as far as China and Africa, people saying, to use your phrase, I want to create belonging. How do I do that, right? Uh, and many of us went to school at some point where we were outside the clique, right? And we, a clique is basically saying these are the people who belong. If you're not in the clique, you don't belong. What are you doing here, you know? Um, so part of it is is we, I, I sort of some say we can almost be ambassadors to Earth. You know, we're, we're it's like welcome to Earth. It's not my planet, but it's our planet and the Earth itself. Welcome to this beautiful planet. Uh, and I actually did this with a young friend of mine that I was um, mentoring for a while. And because he felt like he didn't belong, he felt awkward. It's like, and I'm saying a lot of people feel that to various degrees. Uh, and one reason we feel that is that it's almost like we're all walking around feeling a little bit like I'm not being noticed. And so I said, let's let's try something. So I picked out this uh, older woman, even older than me, <laughs> and uh, she was, looked like she was with someone looked like her husband. She had on a, a hat, and I walked up to her and 
she's white and I'm black, and people in the United States don't oftentimes talk to our fellow species member on the streets. And I walked up to her and I said, excuse me, miss, what a beautiful hat, where did you get it from? And the sun just came out, she just beamed. Mm -hmm. And I tell her, she said, I made it myself. And then she went, and it's like, and it wasn't the hat, it was that it was a human connection, it's that she had been seen. And then she just chatted me up. And so I did that two or three times with my young friend. And I said, now you try it. He said, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and I said, okay, this is the thing. It, it's a little awkward. I know that because we have these norms in our society. Do it with your sister when you go home. You know, just ask her about her day. Uh, give her some attention. Ask her about a story. So just connecting. And because we're... We live in a habituated life. Whenever we break habits, it feels awkward. You know, if we always go home the same way, if we change our route, it's like, it feels strange, right? Uh, if we always take that first step on our right, right foot, start with your left. So this is like that. Just start doing something a little bit to extend yourself to others, to recognize others. And then interestingly, though, the research is quite powerful. It's not only healing for them, they're more likely to recognize you. Hmm. And I sometimes refer to some aspect that are called bridging. Um, so we can become bridgers. Uh, and um, and the, the heart of it is empathetic and compassionate listening, paying attention to others, paying attention to the earth. One of, one of my happiest or most joyous moments on the planet was spending an hour and 15 minutes watching a spider spin a web. And I don't know what, if the spider was joyous that I was... Possibly. <laughs> but it was, it was something. I felt connected. Uh, and, and part of um, being a belonger, building bridges, is connecting with people and situations where it's not necessarily the norm. Um, and, that, and there's all kinds of personal expressions of that. Just... Um, what do you need? They do it now in the activist context called deep canvassing. And deep canvassing, unlike traditional canvassing, traditional canvassing is two, three, or five minutes. Here's my issues. Here's what I think is important. Here's the candidate I'm going to vote for. Who are you voting for? Here's some literature I leave, right? Yeah. Deep canvassing, which acknowledges to some extent that they're building on the work that we do and others around bridging and about empathetic and compassionate listening. It goes something like this. So tell me, how, how is your day today? And do you have any struggles? How's your family? Um, are you worried about anything? Is anything of any concern? What are you dreaming? What do you want to happen? How's your heart, right? And they found, and that's a much longer discussion. It can take an hour. But they found that approach, and this is somewhat of a contradiction, moves people a hundred times more than traditional canvassing. Now, the reason I say it's a contradiction, because when you really are listening, when you're engaging with the other, and of course there really is no other, but when you're engaging with the parent other, you're not doing it for instrumental reasons. You're not doing it so you vote for my candidate. So I'm only really listening. I'm only pretending to be interested in you. Mm -hmm. I want something from you. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I know organizers, and we just came out of a big political brouhaha. Uh, so we do want, to, I wanted to come out a certain way, but at, at its core, deep listening and engaging has a spiritual dimension to it, has a healing dimension to it, and you're not trying to convince the person, okay, you know, great, so become a Christian, become a Buddhist, become a vegetarian, you know, uh, maybe one, that's persuasion. That's not empathetic and compassionate listening. That's at the personal level. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to ask you one more question at the personal level, because in the last couple of years, one of the things I've heard from a lot of people that I know and work with is that their biggest pain when it comes to belonging has to do with their own families, especially when within their families, there's differences on the political spectrum where, you know, I can't talk to my uncle or my cousin or whatever, because we just see this so differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't even feel like I belong within my family. Right, right. What do you have to offer in terms of building bridges in that specific context? Well, it won't surprise you, but I had many of those experiences growing up myself. My, my family, which is a lovely, lovely family. I, I love them to death. Uh, they're very conservative Christians. Uh, and long before Trump, uh, I was made to feel other. Literally, uh, when I stopped going to church as a young man, young kid, 11 years old, I would be left with, I have eight brothers and sisters, and as the family would go off to church on Sunday and Wednesdays, they would leave a list of chores because uh, we wanted to make sure I wasn't having fun. Uh, and, uh, and my youngest sister, who's 13 or 14 years younger than me, she would, as I got a little older, when we went off to college and would come back, she would follow me around the house crying. And I'd say, what's wrong? And she said, I don't want you to go to hell. Uh, wow. And so um, we worked through and I, some, I call these short bridges, but they may not feel very short. Um, and I call them short because there's already this well of love and connection and affection that we've acknowledged. Like even in the midst of that pain, I never stopped loving my family. In fact, part of the pain was that I was being removed from the space of love. Um, and there were many breakthroughs, but just to share one with you, came home from college one time middle of some big political thing. Uh, and my dad, who was a Christian minister, took one position. I took a very different position. And we stayed up all night talking. But here's the thing. We didn't try to convince each other. We tried to really understand what's beneath that. And he was quoting the Bible. The Bible says this. But it's like he was also letting me lean into his heart. Uh, and... The next day, when I came down to breakfast late from being up all night, my mom said to me, what did you and Marshall talk about? He was so happy this morning. He wasn't happy because he had convinced me. He was happy because we had connected. Um, and so part of the thing is that if we, and well, it, it can't be a thing of check the box. If you do these three things, you win. But if, if we can really step back from what's your position on climate change as opposed to, I have a good friend who's a minister here uh, named Ben McBride. He said, if you ask him what you should do, it's the wrong question. It's the question is who you should be and how you should be. And so if we can be present with each other, 
Uh, and it's interesting, again, my father and I and the rest of my family worked most of those things out. But it's because we reconnected and reminded ourselves just how deeply we loved each other. But oftentimes we start with, what's your position? You know, what's your position on X? This is my position on X. And I'm not saying those things are unimportant. The climate is radically important. The earth itself is radically important. Um, but again, to bridge. And I, I've talked to, not only my own family, I've talked to, and I'm not a Trump supporter, but I've talked to Trump supporters about the Affordable Care Act. And there's something you can do. Like, so I'm, I'm there, I'm going down to rural place in, I think it was Arkansas, to talk about uh, trying to get them uh, to, to sign up for Medicaid so they could. I walked in the place. My guess is everybody was a Trump supporter. There was another black person in the place. There wasn't an Asian in the place. There wasn't a Latino in the place. It was all white. My guess is most of them were evangelical Christians. They all had their arms folded. And there was about 300 of them. And I wondered, why did they come? Because <laughs> they obviously don't want to be here. And I lied because I opened up my talk and I said, it's good to be here. Not really. But what happened over the next 20, 30, 40 minutes? I asked them to tell me about themselves. I asked them to tell me about their pains, their suffering, their losses around healthcare. Uh, and they told stories about kids dying. They told stories about their spouse getting cancer and not having insurance. They talked about, uh, you know, the doctors prescribing medicine and the insurance company saying, no, you can't have that medicine. And I said, how did that feel? And by this time, no one has their arm folded. And people are just being very effusive. They're talking loud. They're, but they're not yelling. I'm their friend now. I'm their friend because I'm listening to their pain. And then I pivot. And I said, all these, these things are wrong. You know, these things are not treating you as a human being. They're, they're seeing you as statistic. I could have said they're seeing you as other. And I said, those same phenomena is going on in the Black Latino community. I didn't lose one person. But if I'd started with, um, we need to support the Affordable Care Act, especially in the Black and Latino community, I wouldn't have gotten one person. Yeah. So I started with their pain, and not just their position, but what's underneath it. What, are the, what does they really fear? What do they really aspire to? What do they really hope for? And how are they similar and different to me? Um, and once they really felt I could hear them, it was, it was phenomenal how much they opened up, and the host was amazed. He said, a person was here a few months ago speaking on the same issue and essentially got booed off the stage. Well, I have to say, uh, my heart feels so, uh, it's swelling listening to you. It's, it's actively swelling here. Okay, I'm going to uh, keep our conversation going to the next point, which is this notion of making a difference as a belonging activist when it comes to the structures of our society that uh, actually promote othering. They currently promote othering. And I'm wondering if you can give some pioneering examples of some of the work that people are up to in this category. Sure, that's actually very important. So first I'll give some negative examples. I just read a story by a friend, Naomi Klein, about the Paris fires, Paradise fires out here in California. And just a couple of years ago, the wildfires were just terrible and thousands of people lost their home. 
The result of it is that people opened up their homes, people who still had homes. And some people became unhoused. And so Walmart actually let people camp out on his parking lot. And people brought food and water and diapers and just came to check on people to see how they were doing. It was this real outpouring, this real empathy, if you will, this real compassion. And what Naomi writes about is that two years later, Walmart's parking lot is now occupied by cars. And the people of the town are like, we're tired of people sleeping on the streets. Um, and so the, the sort of interpersonal effort to extend oneself didn't last. Hmm. And they didn't create any institutional support to help people do things. What institutions do by and large is create habits. They create collective habits. They create norms, they create collective norms. Uh, and they make it easy. So habits are important in life, good, bad, or otherwise. Um, but if we had to think about everything all the time, instead of things being habituated, we probably would not survive as a species. So a lot of what we do, think, and feel is actually habituated. That's what the unconscious is about. It's, it learns by habituating. So structures is one of the forms which allows us to habituate. And at some level, we don't, we don't have to think about things, even though maybe we should. So take, you know, I'm old enough to start a school uh, when virtually all the schools in the United States were formally segregated. That's the structure. It was no thought about, well, I think I'll go to the white school today. You know, the, the, someone might call the police because the police was there to enforce the laws. Uh, and when you first bump up against those structures, it feels very awkward, even more awkward than, than your personal things. Like, why are you doing that? Um, and we see this all over. I have a very good friend. Uh, he is African-American as I am. Um, it's, his, his son came out 10 years ago, something as gay. Uh, it was really hard for him. He struggled. He loved his son, still loves his son. Uh, and at one point, he said, you know what? I figured out the problem is not my son. The problem is me. I'm the problem. That was a good discovery. Very good discovery. He worked it through. Uh, and, you know, uh, with help, he had counseling. It wasn't easy. And he was very happy to go to his son's wedding. His son is now married to his partner. And then I was talking to him maybe two or three years ago, and it's like, okay, I, I get that I was basically being a um, you know, uh, SOB around a gay and lesbian issue. But this trans issue, when does it end, John? When does it end? I've already I said it doesn't. Uh, but so part of it is that when, when things change, it's not easy. And one of the things that helped a lot in terms of the marriage equality was not just put people working on, on a personal level. It was, it was our leaders, uh, our courts, uh, our military, uh, also doing things at a structural level. It, it, it made it harder to stand in the face of that. When you have, okay, I like my Apple Watch and Tim Cook is gay? Hmm, okay, I still like my Apple Watch. You know, so I think we have to do things on both levels. If we don't do things at a structural level, structurals, the structural level will undermine what we're doing at a personal level. In uh, one of your presentations, you told a story about going to the 
University of Texas at Austin campus. And some changes they made as a result, it sounded like from maybe some contribution that you and others made to help uh, raise awareness around the campus. I wonder if you can tell that story, because for me, that was very illuminating. Yes, I was being recruited to come down there, and they were they were happy to the prospects of getting me there, and I was relatively happy about going. Uh, and I went down there, it's a beautiful campus, it's a flagship college in Texas, in Austin. And as we're walking around, there's all this Confederate memorabilia. Um, you know, I grew up as a kid, sort of Davy Crockett and, you know, um, thinking of all the stuff down there. Um, uh, but anyway, you know, as I'm walking around, I'm feeling uncomfortable. And, and my host, I think at some point, senses it. And he, he sort of turns to me and he says, you know, don't worry or pay attention to all of this Confederate stuff. We fought on the side of the South. We're, we're a slaveholding state. Um, you know, but that's our history. And I know from doing work in mind science and spiritual work that my, my, my unconscious was screaming, like, get the hell out of here. And the people were nice enough. Uh, the structures were doing some work. Uh, and I didn't go down there, but not because of this, that, uh, mainly because of my granddaughter. Uh, but later, students start talking about it. And the Black and Latino students were not doing well. And interestingly, again, it wasn't that anyone said anything. It wasn't that anyone did anything. It's just we had this constant reminder. Uh, and the people who felt a little bit more comfortable with it for a while couldn't understand the discomfort. You know, what's the big deal? Uh, but those things actually do matter. And they, it's interesting. They matter in both directions. They matter in terms of saying to people, you don't belong. But in a distorted way, they also matter in terms of shoring up a particular type of white identity. Now, this is tricky and hard because when you think about, okay, what about all those Confederate monuments? Should we just take them down? First of all, most of them didn't happen right after the Civil War. They happened more recently than that. But it is true we get attached to things. And not just in I'd like them, that on some deep level, they're actually helping to constitute who we are. Uh, so if I'm taking down your monument, can I have any empathy for you? Uh, even though your monument may be direct, disrespectful to me. Uh, and we see this all over. Okay, just one of the example. In the 70s, when women were coming into the workplace in large numbers, they would go into a workplace and there would be lewd, if not pornographic, pictures of women all over the workplace. Yeah. And women complain. And the man was like, we've always had these pictures. Well, you've always been a male-dominated institution. <laughs> uh, and it's not that they weren't nice to their wife back at home or they were mean to their daughter, but the daughter and the wife had a place that was consigned to them. Uh, and the women were saying, I'm coming here. I don't want these pictures. I don't want to be face having to face pornographic pictures all day. The first response was, Women can put up their own pictures. If you want to pick a, put a picture of a naked man, that's fine. If you want to show a man with his genitals, that's fine. But an interesting thing, that actually was still a male-dominated response. And the case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And a, conservative, a moderate 
Republican justice wrote the, the, the opinion and said, no, this was a hostile workplace. And that's where that concept came from. It, it, and it seems odd, like, why was it hostile? It had been there for 50, 60, 70 years. No, very few men complain. Uh, but when women complain, the first response is, what's wrong with women? You have to adjust. Uh, now, no one would even think about doing that. Or very few people, I should say, maybe someone would. Um, but structures matter, symbols matter. And while I think that decision was completely right, the men felt a loss. They felt, you know, something that they valued was taken away from them. Um, and that may be still the right thing to do, but it's also, I think, appropriate to understand that people may feel a loss um, for their Confederate flags, for their pornographic pictures, uh, for their um, symbolism of um, black statues in the, in the front lawn. Um, I went to Stanford. Um, it was When I went there, it was called the Stanford Indians. Uh, they finally changed it to the Stanford Cardinals. Some of the alumni uh, who were given money said, I'll never give money again. You've taken away my symbol. Well, you know, okay, but that's your symbol was dehumanizing Native populations. Uh, and still, I understand, okay, you have some pain around it, but I think it was the right thing to do. I notice I'm feeling much more invested in the belonging gain than I am whatever the losses are involved for people. That's not, you seem much more sensitive and empathetic to the loss. I'm a little bit like, come on, we got to go. Right. Well, I think you have to do both. I mean, um, I, I gave a talk this morning. I talked about uh, um, the trial in Minneapolis. Um, and, you know, Derek Shevin was convicted appropriately. Keith Ellison is a friend of mine. He's the attorney general. He's the one who structured the trial. He's the one who actually orchestrated it. And he was being interviewed on television. And the announcer said, so how do you feel about this? And he said, it was, I'm not even sure we achieved justice. He says, the right thing to do is a step. We're talking about a system, not just a bad individual. We're talking about a system, you know, the way we do not just policing, the way we do make laws, the way we do um, courts, the way we do, you know, it's, it's a whole number of things, but it's a step in the right direction. And the, the verdict was the right verdict. This guy did something terrible. He has to be held accountable. And then he did this interesting thing. He said, but I still feel a little bad for him. And the interviewer said, what do you mean you feel a little bad from this guy? Keith Ellison is African-American, uh, head prosecutor, attorney general. What do you mean you feel a little bad for him? This guy killed someone with people watching, watching all over the world. And yes, he probably, maybe was a racist. And Keith said, I think that may be true, but he's still a human being. He's still a human being. And so the thing that we sometimes miss in terms of compassion, empathy, bridging, is that we think, we, we misunderstand it. We think it means you forgive the person for, you don't hold the person accountable, right? You still have to hold the person accountable. In fact, some people would say that's an act of respect when I hold someone accountable. But you also hold on to their humanity. 
And if you hold on to, so a lot of times when people lose with a symbolic loss or, or, or more material loss, what they're also saying is that I'm being told I don't count. I'm being told I'm bad. I'm being told I'm less than. And we have to be careful because I sometimes talk about white supremacy and I say the operative word in that phrase is not white, it's supremacy. What we have to be really dogged, challenging is the notion of supremacy, any kind, whether it's religious supremacy, gender supremacy, racial supremacy, national supremacy, uh, all of those are problematic. Um, so I think, in fact, there's some data that suggests that people are more able to move if, when I say, get out of this place, but here's another place for you to go, right? Is that we still are holding on to your humanity, uh, white man in the workplace. We recognize you have some pain. Yes, this has to change, but we recognize you have to, some pain. And we want to restorative justice. That's partially what it's about. Um, and if that's done, then the possibility of change is actually much greater. But if you say, not only does your statues have to go, but you have to go with them. And, and you're morally bankrupt and evil and bad. Well, no one can swallow that. You know, this whole topic that I opened up for us about the structural changes that are needed so that we can have this future of belonging. It's so huge. It's so huge. And I wonder when you look at it, do you have a sense of the priorities when you think this is, you know, this is my work in the world. This is what I do. I'm on this mission. You know, I'm the director of the other. What here are the priorities that we have to address? Well, fortunately for us, we have pretty decent size uh, and we're working with people all over the world. Uh, I think I, I think it's sort of interesting. The core is recognizing that everyone counts, everyone belongs, that everyone has a voice that can participate. But now to make that real, it's more than just saying, saying that. Uh, so for example, if I say everyone belongs, but you can't, vote, you can't go to the store, you don't have a house, you don't have a, a pot to piss in, right? So it's, it's, it, um, there's um, uh, two political philosophers, one named John Rawls and one named America Sin. America Sin was also an economist. He says that in any given society, there's things you need to actually be part of it, a full member of that society. And those things will change. Uh, it could be a cell phone. If you don't have a cell phone in some societies, you don't belong. Uh, and what I've said, and I've written about this myself, is that the first and most important thing is full membership. And in that full membership, you decide what those other things are and how they should be distributed. Uh, and so to really recognize someone's full humanity. Uh, there have been friends sometimes who, who would say to me, you know, you're a professor at Berkeley and, and look at you. You're dressed like a homeless person. And I said, are you being disparaging to people who are unhoused, the assumption that those people, and we know this from the work of people like uh, Professor Dr. Fiss at Princeton, that has, in, our, in our society, we don't see homeless people as belonging. We don't see them as human. There's a part of the brain that lights up when we see another human being. As a collective, 
as society, when we see homeless people, that part of the brain does not light up. For many Americans, a returning citizen, African-American, that part of the brain does not light up. And I've written about this, that there's no way for us to get to good policy for people that we don't see as human. We have to hold on to our interconnectedness. And it's not always easy. Uh, but then we have to do make sure that our policies are right. Um, and they'll change. I'll sometimes give the example. I'm in a wheelchair. I come to a building and there's no ramp. I've just been other. I've been institutionally othered. I've been told you don't belong here. Even if people pick me up and take me in, uh, I've still been other. Uh, and so, uh, so we need to actually constantly engage this. And I would say multiple levels, but it's like wherever you are, start there, wherever you are. You don't have to be someplace else. You don't have to go across the world or uh, start where you are. Uh, and go as far as you can. And to me, this is actually a life journey and it's a beautiful part of life. One of my uh, favorite quotes that I got from you was, is it the journey? Is it the destination? Do you know what I'm talking about here, John? Are yeah. we, is it the journey? Is it the destination? And I was like, oh, it's definitely the journey. It's not the destination, but then you had the punchline. It's the company. Yeah. It's who you're with. I mean, you know, the people that you, the work I do is hard sometimes, but I have a really great group of people I work with. I get to meet wonderful people. Uh, and that's what resiliency is. We sort of confuse that. We think it's like, he's tough, you know, he can deal with anything. It's like no one's tough in that sense. But we are sometimes, we have this community, we have this family, uh, and we have this company. And, and with that, you can go all the way through life. And without that company, as we as demonstrated with the, with the pandemic, when we're isolated from each other, it doesn't matter if you have a big house and a nice car. Literally, I have a friend who's quite wealthy. He's rich, not even wealthy. Private jets and the whole thing. He lives in New York. And he said, I miss seeing people on the subway. Not friends, but it's just, I miss human contact. Uh, and, and so, I would like to see us, and one of the things that might happen as a result of uh, the pandemic is here in the Bay Area, and I'm sure in parts, people are out on the streets. So now all the restaurants have people sitting on the street. And there's something very nice about that. You know, sometimes I literally just drive or walk down the street just to see other people out doing what people do. Well, I just want to take a moment right now because I feel uh, blessed to be in your company. And I think our listeners probably feel the same way. And so I just want to take a moment uh, to underscore. Thank you. Thanks for on the journey, the journey to greater belonging for being in our company. Now, there's one other big topic that I want to make sure we get to because there is a section of your book, Racing to Justice, Transforming Our Conceptions of Self and Other to Build an Inclusive Society. This is a collection of essays that you've written all in one book. And the very last section is a chapter that's called Lessons from Suffering, How Social Justice Informs Spirituality. And this section was particularly meaningful to me as someone who for 36 years now has run a publishing company all about spiritual wisdom. I immediately turned to this section and what I, I got from it, a couple things that I wanted to make sure to talk to you about. And one was this 
idea that you put forward that by engaging with the suffering of people, by engaging with the poor, by engaging with people who have been othered, our spiritual journey as individuals will be given an ingredient that we absolutely need. It's critical. If we don't do that, we're missing something. And I wanted you to talk more about this and how you're so convinced this is true. Well, that's a, thanks, thanks for the question. Uh, and it's a delight to be in your company, uh, be on this journey with you. Um, and I came to that, I wrote that in part for a couple of reasons. I, I feel like oftentimes it's uh, the idea that people who meditate and do yoga and different spiritual practice, that they should help the activists. You know, because activists sometimes are stressed out physically and emotionally, sometimes um, burning up with their own anger. It's like we could help, right? But there's oftentimes not an appreciation that people who are engaged with the suffering of others have something to teach those of us who uh, organize around spirituality. And, and much of the spirituality in the West, uh, in many respects, is the quiescence. Like, I want to get away from the noise of the world. I want to go you know, out to nature. Of course, nature is everywhere, but I want to go out to nature. Um, and I don't want to, certainly don't want to get involved in politics. I mean, this, that's really dirty stuff. Yeah, messy. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and you think about the lotus flower, right? And what's the representation of the lotus flower is growing out of a muddy pond this beautiful flower. Uh, and, um, and whether you think about Mother Teresa or, or Gandhi or Buddha, they weren't withdrawn from the world. And in fact, the, for the time Buddha was withdrawn from the world, at least by some accounts, he apologized when he came back. It's like, yeah, I left my family. That was not cool. <laughs> you know? Uh, and um, so, and, and it's sort of interesting. Um, when you look at the major religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, all of them, they have these deep origin stories that very much deal with suffering. Uh, the thing that sort of drives people to uh, religion in a way, uh, even in quote-unquote pre-modern societies, is the, the suffering that comes with being alive. Um, and we have different strategies for those. You know, someone's like, well, you can suffer now, but later you're going to get everything you need and everything you want, and you're never going to get old, and you know, it's going to be so cool. It's like, okay, do I have to wait so long? Yeah, you have to wait, and then you have to die, and then it happens, right? right? But people like hungering for something. And so I wrote that piece for two things. One, to say that wisdom is all, all around us, and if we can only be wise and at peace in a quiet sanctuary, next to a stream, we're fooling ourselves. We're fooling ourselves. It, it becomes so precious that everything disturbs it. Oh, there's a bird that's messing up my silence. You know, <laughs> uh, there's a car that just went by. Oh, my kids are crying, you know. You know, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be uh, enlightened. I'm trying to be quiet and, uh, and, I, and, you know, and I've, not to knock anyone's practice, but, you know, I feel like as I've been in my own practice, things come through. You know, they don't, I don't necessarily have to grab onto them. It can be whatever. Uh, and I can be angry and still have joy and love. Uh, and Dr. King talked about righteous indignation. Righteous indignation. So what is that? Well, the way he explained it, as I understand it, is that God is sometimes angry at the way we're treating each other and nature. 
God is angry because of how we are, uh, what I call, visiting surplus suffering with each other. Um, and we should be too. When we see how we treat kids at the border or how we treat uh, Asian Americans or how we treat uh, Muslims in China or how we, we should be hurt and angry. That should be, and, and there's something there. Um, and it's not, I think when we push things away, right? When we push the suffering away, when we push the feelings away, we're pushing all the lessons that go with it. And so I'm saying there's lessons in suffering. There's a way in which we can actually um, uh, be in relationship with suffering that teaches us. And, and so it's not just to get away from it, it's to learn from it. Uh, and that sometimes what we think of as spiritual is really uh, an effort just to get away, it's, it's close to escapism. What capacity do you think it takes to be with suffering and to not just be like, please get me away from this ASAP. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it helps with, if, you know, we all, everybody needs a body. So, um, and sometimes the suffering is personal, right? It's like something happened to me and sometimes it's collective. There's very good data showing that when a, Black person is killed, the black community in the immediate area, if not the whole country, goes into trauma. You know, so, uh, but part of, from my perspective, part of a family, part of loved ones, part of the spiritual community is to help us get to that. So we help each other. And that's what I mean by resiliency is a, is a collective sport. Uh, I remember going to talk to my dad, and it was one of those days when I was feeling burdened and, and overwhelmed. And I said to my dad, you know, I just, I just can't do this by myself. Uh, and my dad's response was, you're never called to do anything by yourself. God is with you. And he's a theist and a Christian minister, but still that was very comforting to me to realize that, yes, I was closed in my own little circle and maybe it's some hubris thinking I had to do it by myself and recognizing that there are other people, some of them I know and some I don't know, who are on the same journey somehow that was very helpful for me. And, uh, and so I try to remind myself that is that uh, there are people, things larger than us that are engaged in this effort. Uh, we don't know how it's going to turn out, but there are a lot of people, a lot of energy, a lot of life that's leaning in the right direction. And, and so before we close though, uh, you said when you were growing up, you felt like you didn't belong. I wonder if you feel like you belong now, what happened to change if, if, if you do feel like yeah. you Yeah. I'm happy to share that with you, John. And then I'm going to ask a challenging question, not challenging you, challenging me and our listeners. But to answer your question, I think when I discovered meditation and I started feeling like I could inhabit my body and mm -hmm. I could handle intense, painful, emotional states, and I started developing a real relationship with the earth and my very own body as being part of the earth. Mm. I started feeling like it was okay to be here, even if it hurt a lot. Mm. That's, that's great. That's beautiful. Now, here's my question. In my own life experience and in the experience of plenty of people I know, through spiritual practice, there's been a recognition of our interdependence 
you could say that, you know, I'm here because you're there. The tree doesn't exist mm -hmm. without the soil and the sun and the water. Everything's connected. You watched a spider for, you know, an hour and a half, you know, the web of life. Like, I get that. Yet, for many people, it hasn't been necessarily an intuitive leap to mm -hmm. engage in all of the structural ways we other. It's been mm -hmm. like, yeah, I get it. My meditation, it's mm -hmm. a cosmic web of life. Mm -hmm. But that hasn't translated mm -hmm. into being a belonging activist. What do you think has been the gap there? That's a great question. I think there are a couple. One, I think for many of us, I spent a lot of time, I lived in India for a while. I lived in Africa. I spent a lot of time in Latin America. Um, and I think the individual ideology in the West, particularly the United States, even when we engage in a spiritual practice, is very strong. It's, it's, it's like, you know, um, um, bodhisattvas. We're not bodhisattvas, right? We want to be enlightened. We don't want to be bodhisattvas. You know, the idea of bodhisattvas is like, I'm not, I could be enlightened, but I'm going to stay here until everyone's suffering has to leave. I take that on. It's like, nope. When I'm, I'm, I want to get rid of my suffering and I'm done with it, I'm out of here. You know, I care about other people, but, um, and I think the, the ideology of individuality as a separate sneaks in in really insidious ways. Give you just one example. It's like, how do you know something is true? I feel it, right? The source is still hyper-focused on the I. Um, and, um, and I think that's hard to break. And so I don't think there are many, there are growing examples. There's like Buddhist Peace Fellowship. Um, um, and, you know, I, I read a lot about Buddhism and other religious expressions. Almost all of them have the danger of being captured by the dominant society. Uh, so the, the samurai the warriors, right? That they were also religious. Um, you know, so what happens in different countries when the, the, the Buddhists attack the Muslims and the Muslims attack the Buddhists? And so I think there's something that's easy to, to sort of veer off into, you know, into another, into myself, whatever that is, or into my tribe, whatever that is. Um, um, so I think it's hard. I don't think there are many, uh, there's some, but many powerful lessons. And they're constantly... You know, there's this, this story, supposedly it's true, where a holy man in India were in the 60s and 70s when Americans were making the trek to India, and a holy man says, why do so many Americans come to India? We're a poor country, and things is dirty, and the American says, well, we're coming here looking for God. An Indian person responds, the holy man responds, no God in America? <laughs> <laughs> You know, so I think I think um, the impulse. Is, so I don't know, Tim. I'm just I'm just meeting you, and I'm I'm glad I've met you. It's been too long. Uh, when you talked about becoming a sense of belonging, it was through connection. It's like connecting to your body, connecting to earth. Um, I think a lot of people's spiritual journey is is without being judgment, but it's escape. It's like there's too much pain, there's too much this. So I need to, I need to get away from it, uh, as opposed to 
holding space for all of it. Uh, and I think if you're pushing things away, uh, um, there's a, a song by Leonard Cohen. I'm trying to think of the line. Um, it's something like, you who leave everything that you cannot control. It's, it starts with your family and then it comes around to your soul. And I think for a lot of us, we're leaving things. We're still trying to get away. Um, and uh, the suffering in the world, and I, I get it. I mean, the, the, there's still times I feel like this overwhelming. There's so much sadness, uh, so much pain. Um, so I think that contributes to it. Okay, well, I said I was going to ask a question that was challenging uh, for me and our listeners, but now I'm going to ask one that I think would be challenging if, <laughs> for you, but we'll see how you go. It's our final question. We're embedded in each other. We're interdependent. Given all of that, how do you, John, now answer the question, what is the self? Well, um, I think the self is largely an illusion. Uh, it's not that there's not something, but it's certainly not what we think it is. Um, and if we pay attention, we'll, you know, it's like you don't have to read a book or whatever. You see that. You see the, 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 this, this uh, image keeps changing. And no matter how hard we try to hold on to it, it keeps changing. Um, and then we construct. People oftentimes ask me about, well, how did you get in this work? And I, my response is usually, first of all, I don't know. But secondly, why wouldn't I? I mean, wouldn't everybody get into this work? I mean... Uh, but also say that sometimes I construct a story. Like, like I say, when I was three years old, I knew that I would be director of the Ellerman Belong Institute. Not, but there's a piece of me that actually believes that, right? There's a piece of me that's like, when I tell the story of my life, I, niche, I stitch all these threads together so they seem continuous. But I also know that's not quite real. <laughs> uh, and so... Um, I think that knitting together creates a sense of this permanent, stable self, and that if we and that if we are attentive, if we are a little quiet, we actually see that those the gaps in these knits, and then we can actually start seeing them even faster, you know. And then they become interesting. It's like, okay, what's happening when there's not the John that I normally am projecting to the world? What happens when there's this awareness and animal thoughts and their feelings and they're just, you know, um, um, but within in language and stories and um, our society basically really believes in a permanent self. I have a friend who's an um, uh, accomplished psychiatrist and he says, no matter where I am, I'm the same person. And I said, I don't think that's true. <laughs> You know, I think when you're in different situations, you actually slightly and sometimes radically different people. Ideology in America is like, no, I, I see myself. And, and it's actually coming together now with the mind science. As we, so as we study the unconscious, we find out that there's a whole bunch of things going on that we never become conscious of, that affects us the way we feel, the way we think. Uh, and we can measure, we can see. Um, and for a lot of Americans, it's very uncomfortable to suggest that there's that there's part of me that's working behind my conscious back uh, and affecting the way I feel and see the world. 
Um, and to me, that's one of the potentially beautiful things about um, a mindful practice is that you get a glimpse of some of that. Okay, I'm going to sneak in a final question. What was going on for you when you were watching that spider? What was happening? Um, we were spinning away. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think like anything, you know, like when you're deeply engaged, that space shrinks. And it was just, it was just lovely. The feeling was, um, um, you know, there's a there's a, a video which I would suggest your listeners on try to find, but it's uh, this mother who takes her baby to a zoo. And this just happened the last couple of days. And there's a, a ape in the zoo who just had a baby. And the ape is like so loving. It's a glass between them, but the ape is trying to stroke the baby. It's like, you know, if, we, if it's not too much of objection, you can see the joy in the ape's face of recognizing uh, and then the ape go gets its baby and comes back and shows him to the woman. It's like, I got a baby too. <laughs> and I think when we are living those connections and they're not just an idea, then it's hard to know where things stop and start. It's hard to know where the spiders stop and where, where John start. Uh, so I think in those moments, we sort of, um, something happens and we don't have a good language for it, but it's, it's a wonderful feeling. All right, I'm going to let you go, John Powell. You are so warm and gorgeous. What a gorgeous human being. It's been such a great joy to get to spend some time with you. Thank you so very much. Well, I appreciate having time to spend with you. And it's like, so another part of life has sort of unfolded. So thank you. John A. Powell, the director of the Othering and Belonging Institute. Thanks everyone for being with us. And I know, I feel it, being belonging activists together. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.